Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Friday, January 26th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I am Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a podcast dedicated to prayer, devotion, scripture reading, and Bible study. Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. There's a lot of great listening over there. Over 60 well-curated podcasts, wide, wide variety of topic areas, all covered from a biblical worldview. My brothers and sisters in Christ over there doing great work for the kingdom. I would definitely encourage you to go on over there. I will guarantee you, you're going to find something over there to listen to. And there's a real good chance you're going to find more over there to listen to than you actually have time to listen to it in, which is a great problem to have. All right. Well, it's Friday. We're getting to the end. We're at the end of the week. So, as we normally do, we'll do our Bible reading this morning, and we'll do our last Bible study of the evening, I'm sorry, last Bible study of the week this evening. Um, it will be the second of what I believe will be four Bible studies. We did one last night, and then one tonight, in this part one of Jesus praying for all believers in the high priestly prayer, John 17. So, sometime... Maybe by next Friday, we'll finish up John 17, I think. <laughs> we'll have to see. I know it's we're moving kind of slow, but it's really important. And especially this part, um, this part, this first part here about being united in truth, about unity, about true unity. What is true unity? And like we did, we dealt with um, yesterday, the root, last evening, the root of true unity. This evening, we're going to talk about the request for true unity, the request that Jesus makes. But... For this morning, why don't we go ahead and get started? We'll go ahead and open up in prayer. We're going to open up with the six-day morning prayer. It's called the Gospel. Let's pray. O Thou Most High, Creator of the ends of the earth, Governor of the universe, Judge of all men, Head of the Church, Savior of sinners, Thy greatness is unsearchable, Thy goodness infinite, Thy compassions unfailing, Thy providence boundless, Thy mercies ever new. We bless Thee for the words of salvation. How important, suitable, encouraging are the doctrines, promises, and invitations of the gospel of peace. We are lost, but in it thou hast presented to us a full, free, and eternal salvation. Weak, but here we learn that help is found in one that is mighty. Poor, but in him we discover unsearchable riches. Blind, but we find he has treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We thank thee for thy unspeakable gift. Thy Son is our only refuge, foundation, hope, confidence. We depend upon his death, rest in his righteousness, desire to bear his image. May his glory fill our minds, his love reign in our affections, his cross inflame us with ardor. Let us as Christians fill our various situations in life, escape the snares to which they expose us, discharge the duties that arise from our circumstances, enjoy with moderation their advantages, improve with diligence their usefulness, and may every place and company we are in be benefited by us. Amen. All right, and our morning devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. Uh, let's see, the text for it is from Matthew 6.26. Your Heavenly Father. God's people are doubly his children. They are his offspring by creation, and they are his sons by adoption in Christ. Hence they are privileged to call him our Father which art in heaven. Father, oh where is your... I'm sorry, Father, oh what precious word is that? Here is authority. If I be a father, where is mine honor? If ye be sons, where is your obedience? 
Here is affection mingled with authority, an authority which does not provoke rebellion, an obedience demanded which is most cheerfully rendered, which would not be withheld even if it might. The obedience which God's children yield to him must be loving obedience. Do not go about the service of God as slaves to their taskmaster's toil, but run in the way of his commands, because it is your Father's way. Yield your bodies as instruments of righteousness, because righteousness is your Father's will, and his will should be the will of his child. Father, here is a kingly attribute, so sweetly veiled in love, that the king's crown is forgotten in the king's face, and his scepter becomes not a rod of iron, but a silver scepter of mercy. The scepter indeed seems to be forgotten in the tender hand of him who wields it. Father, here is honor and love. How great is a father's love to his children! That which friendship cannot do, and mere benevolence will not attempt. A father's heart and hand must do for his son. They are his offspring. He must bless them. They are his children. He must show himself strong in their defense. If an earthly father watches over his children with unceasing love and care, how much more does our heavenly father, Abba Father, he who can say this hath uttered better music than cherubim or seraphim can reach. There is heaven in the depth of that word, Father. There is all I can ask, all my necessities can demand, all my wishes can desire. I have all in all to all eternity when I can say, Father. All right, well, our reading for today, and again, we've passed into, we did yesterday, we passed in out of the book of Genesis and into Exodus in our reading plan. So hadn't even made it out of January, we're already in the second book of the Old Testament. So we're going to be reading from Exodus 2, verse 11, all the way through Exodus 3. We're going to be reading Matthew 17, verse 10 to the end of the chapter. We'll be reading Psalm 22, first 18 verses, and then Proverbs 5, verses 7 through 14. So... Exodus 2, verse 11. Now it happened in those days that Moses had grown up, and he went out to his brothers and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his brothers. So he turned this way and that, and he saw that there was no one around, so he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Then he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were struggling with each other. And he said to the wicked one, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a ruler or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. And Pharaoh heard of this matter, so he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to give water to their father's flock to drink. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses rose up and saved them and gave water to their flock to drink. Then they came to Raoul, their father, and he said, Why have you come back so soon today? So they said, An Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds, and he actually even drew the water for us and gave water to the flock to drink. And he said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Call him so that he may eat bread. And Moses was willing to settle down with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. Then she gave him birth to a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now it happened in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the slavery, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And God saw the sons of Israel, and God knew them. Exodus 3 Now Moses was pastoring the flocks of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why is the bush not burned up? And Yahweh saw that he turned aside to look. So God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. So now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, and so you shall bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God at this mountain." Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am about to come to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they will say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name from generation to generation. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I indeed care about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you all will say to him, Yahweh the God of the Hebrews has met with us. So now please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not give you permission to go except by a strong hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wondrous deeds, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and of the woman who lives in her house for articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus ye will plunder the Egyptians. Matthew 17, verses 10 to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> and his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. 
so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O oh, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Now when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom did the kings of the earth collect tolls or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? And when Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a stator. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Psalm 22, the first 18 verses. <laughs> For the choir director, according to Aijaleth Hashshahar, Hashshahar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my salvation are the words of my groaning. O oh my God, I call by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And you are fathers trusted, they trusted, and you rescued them. To you they cried out, and were granted escape. And you they trusted, and were not disappointed. But I am a worm, and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They smash their lips, they, I'm sorry, they smack their lips, they wag their heads, saying, Commit yourself to Yahweh, let him rescue you, rescue him, let him deliver him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me out of the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for distress is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me, as a lion that tears and roars. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. <clears throat> a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. By the way, that's prophetic, if you didn't know that. Um, very clearly pointing at the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Or at the crucifixion of Christ, I should say. All right, and Proverbs 5, 
verses 7 through 14. So now, my sons, listen to me, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near that door of her house, lest you give your splendor to others and your years to the cruel one. Lest strangers be satisfied by your strength and by your painful labor, those in the house of a foreigner, and you groan at your end, when you fl- when your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, say how I have hated discipline, and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my instructors, and I have not inclined my ear to my teachers. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. All right, well, that is our reading for the day. I uh, thank you for spending this time with me. Um, I continue to pray that we would all be more and more saturated with the word of God. Um, um, it's where we need to be, of course. Um, but I hope you have a great day. I would continue to implore you to do all you do for the glory of God. And I hope to see you for the evening segment. Let's go ahead and close out with prayer from Valley of Vision. Uh, this one is called Christ the Word. Let's pray. My Father, In a world of created changeable things, Christ and his word alone remain unshaken. O to forsake all creatures, to rest as a stone on him the foundation, to abide in him, be borne up by him. For all my mercies come through Christ, who has designed, purchased, promised, affected them. How sweet it is to be near him, the lamb filled with holy affections. When I sin against thee, I cross thy will, love, life, and have no comforter, no creature to go to. My sin is not so much this or that particular evil, but my continual separation, disunion, distance from thee, and having a loose spirit towards thee. But thou hast given me a present, Jesus thy Son, as mediator between thyself and my soul, as middleman who who in a pit holds both him below and him above, for only he can span the chasm breached by sin, and satisfy divine justice. May I always lay hold upon this mediator, as a realized object of faith, and alone worthy by his love to bring the gulf, let me know that he is dear to me by his word. I am one with him by the word on his part, and by faith on mine. If I oppose the word, I oppose my Lord when he is most near. If I receive the word, I receive my Lord wherein he is nigh. O thou who hast the hearts of all men in thine hands, From my heart, according to the word, according to the image of thy Son, so shall Christ the word and his word be my strength and comfort. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful day, and I hope to see you for the evening segment. Have a good one. God bless. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Friday, January 26th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. All right, we're going to be continuing in our study of John uh, chapter 17. However, let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Uh, we've What we've been using for our evening prayer here um, is At the Throne of Grace. It's a book. Um, from you can find it at gty.org um, again at the throne of grace it is a book of prayers they are prayers by john macarthur um, his children put this together for him is my understanding 
Um, and so each of these, um, they've got a title here, like Valley of Vision does, but then they also have biblical texts that lead them in. So the one we're using today is called Overflowing with Gratitude for God's Love. And this is from Psalm 139, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> o Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, be, Sheol, I'm sorry, Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is such a staggering realization to understand that you, the infinite God of the universe, truly love us with a love that is everlasting. You set that love on us before time began. You chose us and ordained us to eternal life in timeless ages past, and therefore we rest in the assurance that you, your love will endure into the countless ages of eternity future. You have made us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. Open our mouths to proclaim your excellency, because you have drawn us out of darkness and into the marvelous light of your truth. You raised us up out of spiritual death through the saving truth of the gospel, and you made us fully alive in Christ by your Spirit, all because of the great love with which you loved us. We now have the blessed privilege of being not only your dutiful slaves, but also your blessed sons and daughters. We say with the Apostle Paul, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You richly provide us with good things to enjoy, although in this world we face frequent tribulations, sorrows, sickness, and suffering for Christ's sake. All the bitterness of life is sweetened by your promises and held in check by your merciful grace. So many tokens of your goodness and mercy encourage us amid the discouraging realities of life in this fallen world. When we become downhearted, you give us sympathy and support in abundant measure. When we face grave temptations, you are our guardian and refuge. You strengthen us in the hour of trial, and in the wake of every victory, you lead us in triumph. Accept, O Lord, our feeble efforts to praise you and thank you. You never cease to love us. You never fail to preserve us from the evil one, and you never skimp in showing us mercy. You will never cast us away. Christ has promised never to leave us or forsake us, and your Holy Spirit is with us and in us forever. You faithfully preserve your saints eternally. Dear Lord of all mercy, remove from our hearts the festering pride, evil desire, false motives, insincerity, envy, longing for worldly prominence, and every other secret sin. Help us to wait patiently upon you. May we learn to see the wisdom of your providence. Not only in your actions, but also in your delays. Stir in our hearts a proper sense of awe and reverence for your perfections. And may we learn to love and pursue holiness as befits children of the Holy One. Inscribe your love on our hearts in such a way that our every thought will somehow be a reflection of that love. 
we celebrate your grace and goodness to us in the covenant of salvation. May we be a covenant-keeping people, as you are a covenant-keeping God. We thank you that in Christ we have overcome the world, fulfilled the law, found justifying righteousness, seen death swallowed up in victory, and received all we need for everything you require of us. To your name alone we give glory, offering you our praise for Christ's sake. Amen. All right. <clears throat> and our morning or our evening devotion, I should say. This is from Glorifying God, um, which is uh, by Thomas Watson. And let's see. Our text for today's is Romans 10.2. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. We glorify God by being zealous, o zealous for his name. Phineas hath turned my wrath away, while he was zealous for my sake. Numbers 25.11 Zeal is a mixed affection, a compound of love and anger. It carries forth both our love to God and our anger against sin in an intense degree. Zeal is impatient of God's dishonor. A Christian fired with zeal takes a, dis takes a dishonor done to God worse than an injury done to himself. Thou canst not bear them which are evil. Revelations 2.2 2. Our Savior Christ thus glorified his Father. He, being baptized with a spirit of zeal, drove the money changers out of the temple and fulfilled the prophecy that the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. John 2.17 All right, sorry. I banged the microphone there. I need to get a boom. It'd be easier to swing and get, get closer to my mouth um, while not being in the way as I move my arms around. All right, well, we are going to be continuing um, in our study of John chapter 17. And as I've said, so we're going to be continuing in chapter 17, as I just said. Sorry, I got interrupted there. Um, and my train of thought got very derailed, <laughs> which happens kind of regularly. Um, so we, we've, we've broken down in again. I think we've now, this is going to be what, three weeks? I think three weeks worth of going through John 17 alone. Um so 15 different messages, maybe more. Um, maybe I'm off count. Um, if anything, it's more than that, not less than that. Um, but, and I told you that going in, we, we were going to have to get kind of detailed. Um, this is a very, very important part of, part of the scripture. Um, the fact is, like we've talked, this is, this is Jesus' first instance of intercessory prayer for us. Okay. Um, and, and. Of course, as we've talked about, we should know that um, him interceding for us, that this is continuing on the way he speaks of it, the kind of uh, verb tenses he uses. It talks about he's interceding now and he's interceding out through eternity. So he's continuing to do so. So that's not something we ever got to worry about, that he's not interceding for us. Nor is it something that we need to go... <sighs> Sorry, I'm going to upset some people that I have to go talk to another mediator to mediate with the mediator. Jesus is our sole mediator. I don't need to go to Mary to get Mary to talk to Jesus to get Jesus to talk to God. I don't need to go to a priest to get the priest to talk to Jesus to get the Jesus to talk to God. All I need to do, well, fact is I can go and talk to God. But at the same time, I know Jesus is also interceding for me. I don't even have to go through God, though he does act as that mediator, as in he was the propitiatory sacrifice for me. Um, and wow, I'm sorry. We could go, 
oh, I don't know, I could talk straight. And, and I'm sure some of you would go, yeah, you could talk straight, <laughs> but I could talk straight through for three weeks. I mean, nonstop about his role as mediator for us. And excuse me, I need a drink here. All right. But so we've got this prayer that's broken up into three parts. We've talked about that a couple of times. So again, I'm stating the obvious here. The beginning of it is Jesus praying for himself, and then it's Jesus praying for the disciples. And this last part, again, I, as I brought up last night, is Jesus praying for the church, praying for the rest of believers. Those believers, as we talked about um, the end of verse 20, but for those also who believed in me through their word, their being the disciples, being the 11 plus Matthias plus Paul, plus then, you know, Timothy and Titus and all of them that were going to go out, you know, Timothy and Titus and them that were, that were, um, and Apollos that, that were educated by Paul or educated by people Paul had educated to carry by Barnabas, who, who would carry them, carry the gospel, um, by Silas, who would carry the gospel that, that became believers through that work, the work of the first century evangelists that went out. I guess that would be a good way to say it. I hadn't thought of saying that before that kind of came out of nowhere. Don't know who, don't know where I picked that up, but you know, those first century evangelists that carried Christ's message, whether firsthand, secondhand, thirdhand, that they got it carrying that message throughout the known world at that time. So now he's praying for us. I mean, that that's you and I, we're the ones that come after but for those also who believe in me through their words, their words are the New Testament. We're believing through the New Testament. Well, we're believing through the New Testament and the Old Testament because they go together. And, and yeah, there are people out there, um, false teachers, um, Andy Stanley, who have tried to decouple the Old Testament from the New Testament. And I know I'm not going to run down that tangent, but I've tried to decouple them and we can't do that. But again, we are believing because of their teaching. I mean, it, it speaks of it in um, Ephesians... Um, Ephesians 2, very end of Ephesians 2, it, it speaks about that we're being built into a temple of God. We're being built into a temple and that the, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation. And what that means is their teaching is the foundation with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Well, that's the same thing. That's what Jesus is saying right here, that, that we are those who would come to believe. And he's asking on our behalf. And that right there, that, that being believing in the gospel, believing in the message of Christ that was brought by those people, that's the root of our true unity. That is the root of our true unity. So what we see today, and we're only dealing with half a verse, it's almost not even half, half a verse. Um, it's one, two, three, four, five, six words at the beginning of verse 21. So verse 21a. Um, and let me go ahead. Let me just read this first four verses, verse 20 through 23 of John 17. This is kind of the section of, about um, the way MacArthur works these titles, that they would be presently united in truth, united in truth. So let me read 20 through 23, and then we'll start working on 21a here. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them 
and you and me, that they may be perfect, that they may be perfected, sorry, in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So again, we saw that root of true unity, but for those also who believe in me through their word, and then we hear the request from Jesus that they may all be one, that they may all be one. That is Jesus' request for unity. And so you would think we could just say that and we'd be done for the day. Well, maybe, but, but let's talk about it a little bit. Again, in MacArthur's commentary, he talked about this. Um, and I, and I think he nailed this clearly. All true Christians are spiritually united by regeneration in their belief that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and their commitment to the absolute authority of Scripture. That nails it right there. I mean, that makes it absolutely clear. It was like I was saying to you last night. I've got brothers. I've got brothers and sisters that I disagree with about um, baptism. I've got brothers and sisters that I disagree with um, about eschatology or I'm not completely in line with Dr. MacArthur is one of them. Um, I, I, I don't know. Sometimes I struggle with his interpretation of, of revelation, but sometimes I can't argue with it either, either. I'm, I'm, a, I'm more, well, <laughs> a former pastor's wife, a good, good brother of mine's wife. Um, she calls herself a pan millennialist. Um, you know, she's more than willing to talk about and dig into the stuff and everything. But the fact is she, she, like I, and like many of us, I can find some solid arguments for almost every approach to eschatology. I mean, not, not weird, weird ones. Um, you know, we all agree on the fact that Jesus is returning, but other than that, we just don't, we, <laughs> Jesus is returning and Satan's going to be thrown into the lake of fire along with everybody who doesn't believe everyone who was not elect. That's it. You know, all, all the other details, uh, you know, but that doesn't divide us. That's secondary. I mean, that really is secondary other than the fact that Christ is coming again. The, uh, the rest of it is secondary, uh, like, like the baptism issue. But notice MacArthur doesn't speak about any of that. Again, I'll read his quote. All true Christians are spiritually united by regeneration in their belief that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and their commitment to the absolute authority of Scripture. Those four things right there, um, which, <laughs> honestly, that's almost, that, that, that's, uh, <laughs> that's four of the five solas. Um, the only one it's missing there is for the glory of God alone. And that's the chief end of man. So we know that for the glory of God alone, that's it. That's it right there. Um, sola gracia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura. The only one we're missing is glory of God alone. Um, which is funny. I've actually got a Bible around here. Oh, it's downstairs. Um, my wife got, got it for me. It protects my, my preacher's Bible that we got. That was the, um, that John MacArthur put out back in 2018. Um, that is a huge and very expensive Bible that we were given as a gift. And, and so that's why I keep it protected. But my cover has the five solas on it. Um, but that's the thing. I mean, I mean, that is our unity. We're unified in that. Um, Romans 12, five. So we who are many, 
are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Again, makes clear that unity. I am one with my wife. My wife is one with me. I am one with my pastor. My pastor is one with me. I, I am one with my fellow elders and deacons and, and, and friends and family. All, all, all we that are true believers that are truly saved, we are one with each other. That's what he's proclaiming here. But what we've got to understand, and I love that the MacArthur quoted this, this is from D.A. Carson. Okay. This from D.A. Carson. And what he said about this is that the unity for which Christ prayed in this, in this right here, what we're talking about here is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing by undaunted, undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged. So, again, I, I spoke of this, I think I spoke of it last night um, as well, but I, I've tried to be very, very clear about it. When you turn your church into a, we're going to accept everybody and everything and in any way they practice it, that's okay. That's not unity. That's, that's not unity. That has nothing to do with what Jesus is praying for here or what Paul speaks of in Ephesians 4, which we're going to look at here shortly. Um, that's not the kind of unity. I, I'm sorry, you can't. If you're a church, and I, I'm, upset, I'm probably going to upset people, but I'm going to state, state it clearly. If you are a church that is promoting accepting and practicing and and thus doing gay marriages supporting the whole lgbtq letter salad um and, and i'm not saying you have to be hateful but if you're practicing those marriages if you're celebrating if you're accepting those people who are practicing this not people that are struggling with it with it and trying to walk away from it, but, but that are practicing that and you're accepting them as members, you're acting like they, they, that they are saved. You, you are, you know, you are turning around and making, making your church, church, a, an accepting environment of this as if this, and, and not calling this stuff out as the abomination that God calls out in the old Testament and Christ calls out in the new, new Testament. That's not the unity Jesus is speaking of here. Don't ever think that. As I think I said last night, but if I didn't, I'm saying it now. Our unity comes in the truth of the word of God. Therefore, anything we try to push forward, unity supposedly unity-wise, that violates the word of God, that's not unity. And that has nothing to do with what God is speaking here through Jesus what Jesus is saying here and requesting there that they may all be one. That's not what he's talking about. Don't ever think that. And don't, don't ever, you have somebody tries to come to you from the pulpit and tell you that that door should not hit you on the way out the aisle. You need to be gone. And again, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a big one proponent for church hopping and any kind of that. But if you got somebody from the pulpit preaching that and you got, you got the elders and deacons and whatever else in there just nodding along in agreement, you're in the wrong place. 
because that right there is not a church of God. I'm going to state this very clearly and I'm going to upset people. And, and I'm sorry, I'm probably going to upset somebody very, very close to me, very, very close to me. And I'm going to state, tell you right up front, this is not a misogynistic statement in any way, shape or form. And my wife would tell you the same thing. If you have a church and because of your desire for unity, and I'm putting that in quotes, that you allow female pastors and preachers, that's not the unity that Jesus is talking about here. And the fact is that flies directly in the face of scripture. And, and I, I would honestly truly tell you what you have is not a church. What you have is not a church. Therefore, you have no part of this that Jesus is saying that they may all be one. You are supporting that which God forbids. So anyways, moving on. That That's a small part of it, but that's what I'm saying. That's, we can't be, that's that lowest common denominator, common theological denominator Carson is talking about. That if you're, if you're hunting to find the, okay, how far do we got to go so we don't offend anybody and then we'll be unified around that? That's what Carson is saying. No, that's not it. As he said, that the unity um, being achieved here, that Jesus is talking about being achieved here, is by common adherence to the apostolic gospel, by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, and by undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged. Now again, I think Carson nailed something there. The mission with which Jesus followers have been charged. If you are truly part of this unified, the, the, this, this united, if you are truly members one of another, as Romans 12, five states, then you're not going to sit there parked in the pew while everybody else is doing the work. You're going to be up off your behind and you're going to be asking, what can I do? How can I help? What can I be a part of? Being members one of another is not passive. Being true believers in Christ is not passive. It is active and we must be active. And there are way too many out there that throw up their hand and say, yes, I'm a believer in Christ and I'm going to sit right here and make sure this chair doesn't pop up off the floor. Um, there are too many of us do that. Too many of us are like that. And that that's not okay. That's not acceptable. And that's not unified. You're not being unified with your brothers and sisters in Christ if that's all you're doing. Um, no matter what your belief system is. But what we have to see, so Jesus is praying this, that they may all be one. This comes to its fulfillment in the scriptures. It comes to fulfillment on Pentecost with the birth of the church, Acts 2.4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, if I'm understanding the numbers right, we're talking thousands of people right there in the middle of Jerusalem, all of a sudden filled with the Holy Spirit, all of them at one time and all of them speaking with other tongues. I'm going to be clear with you right now. No, this wasn't the blah, 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 blah. This was people speaking in actual languages, all of them speaking in various languages so that all the other visitors to Jerusalem understood what they were saying as they were proclaiming the gospel in their own languages. So people, people coming in, um, 
from the area of Persia, let's say. They would be hearing it in Persian. People coming in from, from around Rome would be hearing it in a, in, a, in a language that they could understand. People coming in from Egypt would be hearing it in a language they could understand. But they are acting as one. They are behaving as one. That foundation of the church, that is the fulfillment, that they may all be one, as we see in verse 21. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For also by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Again, we see that. It's the Holy Spirit, as we saw in Acts 2, 4. It is the Holy Spirit, the one Holy Spirit, that indwells everybody and makes that happen. It is that same Holy Spirit that indwells all of us who truly believe. That is the oneness. That is the unity. Um, Ephesians 4, 3, being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That is our, that is, that is, um, something that Paul puts on us. This, this is Paul again, the second half of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four through ver chapter six is the practice, the practice of the church. Um, again, Ephesians is the, is the ecclesi uh, ecclesiastical, um, epistle. It is about the church. Um, it is about the Ecclesia, the set apart ones. And the first three chapters are the position we are in through the death of death and resurrection of Christ. Um, those who believe again, speaking of believers and then verses four through six are how we should live that out. So that's what it's saying is that, that we should be diligent to keep the unity of the spirit. So that, that true unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, would that, would that Holy spirit, when that Holy spirit indwells, it's not going in to indwell somebody that's going to turn around and be accepting of things that are, that are, that fly in the face of what God has called an anathema, that God has called anathema. Cause believe me, remember Jesus said in the new Testament said clearly, I, I didn't come. I, he made clear. He didn't come to, to say, no, God didn't really mean this. God didn't really mean that God didn't really mean this other. He came to affirm all that God said in the old Testament. Absolutely. Absolutely. He, he, he wasn't throwing any of that out. No, in no way, shape or form. Anybody who tells you that, uh, you might want to check your back pocket, make sure your wallet's still in there. But what we want to see here, and I'll try to wrap this up quick, is the characteristics of this unity. And we see that in Ephesians four verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, or really what it should say is in you all. What we clearly see here is one body, the body of Christ, one spirit, the Holy Spirit, that, that, that one spirit, we are all indwelt by that one spirit, or you're not part of the body. Okay. Just as also you were called in one hope, one hope, that's the gospel, the euangelion that the Christ would sacrifice to pay our debts. Verse five, one Lord, Jesus Christ, one faith, faith in that Lord and Jesus Christ, one baptism, the water baptism, that, that is our representation, our obedience there, that, that we see carried out through the New Testament. 
one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all or in you all. Again, it's really, we, we tend to talk about God being off and off and around and, you know, kind of a nebulous. No, he indwells us. He indwells us. So, sorry. But that's what we're looking at there. Those are the characteristics of that unity. And that is a true unity. That is what we are looking at. That is what Jesus is speaking of here, that they may all be one. This is a true unity, not the manufactured unity that the today's evangelical church, in a lot of cases, through across denominations, tries to force on the church. When, as... MacArthur said clearly, and I'll repeat it again, all true Christians are spiritually united by regeneration in their belief that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and their commitment to the absolute authority of Scripture. That means all of Scripture. Not just only Scripture, but all of Scripture. And that is in the way that Jesus is saying that they may all be one. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us for this evening. I thank you for spending this time with me. I hope you have yourself a wonderful evening. Let's go ahead and close out with prayer. We're going to close out with the six-day evening prayer. It's called the Mediator. Let's pray. O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we hope in thy word. There we see thee, not on a fearful throne of judgment, but on a throne of grace, waiting to be gracious and exalted in mercy. There we hear thee saying, Not depart ye cursed, but look unto me, and be ye saved. For I am God, and there is none else. They that know thy name put their trust in thee. How many now glorified in heaven, and what numbers living on earth are thy witnesses, O God, exemplifying in their recovery from the ruins of the fall, the freeness, riches, and efficacy of thy grace. All that were ever saved were saved by thee, and will through eternity exclaim, Not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and truth's sake. Thou hast chosen to transact all thy concerns with us through a mediator, in whom all fullness dwells, and who is exalted to be prince and savior. To him we look, on him we depend, through him we are justified. May we derive relief from his sufferings without ceasing to abhor sin, or to long after holiness, feel the double efficacy of his blood, tranquilizing and cleansing our conscience, consciences. Delight in his service as well as in his sacrifice. Be constrained by his love, to live not to ourselves but to him. Cherish a grateful and cheerful disposition, not murmuring and repining if our wishes are not indulged, or because some trials are blended with our enjoyments, but sensible of our desert, and impressed with the number and greatness of thy benefits. May we bless and praise thee at all times. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful evening, and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. Have a good night. God bless.